Acts chapter 15 is where we are today. We'll be looking at verse 1 through verse 21. Acts 15 verse 1 through verse 21. If you would stand with me as we read, as we read God's word together. Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've granted us. It's time to study your word, it's time to read, time to hear it taught, proclaimed. And Lord, a chance to do it together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have and pray, Lord, that it would not be wasted. We ask, Lord, for your grace to be with us, for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts to hear and believe the words that you have granted to us. And Lord, I pray today that we would be instructed, 
that we would be informed and that we would see clearly the importance of the gospel as it is proclaimed in the scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In uh, churches today and evangelicalism today, there have been many occasions for disagreements, for disunity among churches. And if we think very hard about examples that we know of, we know that there have been many occasions where much of the disunity, much of the dysfunction, even church splits have been over very petty, very silly things. In fact, there's a, a book written by a pastor named Tom Rayner, uh, who used to be the, uh, the head of, of Lifeway for a while. He wrote a book called, Who Moved My Pulpit? And the book is about leading a church through change, about how a church can make its way through change, and certainly for, for pastors, how they can help lead the church through change. And the title of the book, Who Moved My Pulpit, comes from a story that a, a, uh, a person wrote in to Pastor Rayner, part of what helped motivate him to, to write this book. And it was a letter written to him, a, a, an email that someone wrote to him about a circumstance that they had found themselves in, where this pastor, and this is a true story, pastor who had been pastoring a church for about eight years and had been doing very well. Uh, he was largely very well loved by the, the church. He was accepted by the church. He, he was a solid teacher. His preaching was good. Uh, there were no issues in that respect. But over the course of time, one of the things he had noticed and that he had sort of begun to do is that he had slowly begun to sort of change his preaching style a little bit. Nothing heretical, nothing wrong. Uh, but while he had he'd started out preaching largely uh, from a manuscript, reading a manuscript, preaching that way, which is a perfectly fine way to preach the gospel, perfectly acceptable. But he noticed that there were times when he would, throughout his sermon, he would sort of step away from his manuscript and he would preach in a more personal way to the congregation. And as he did so, he noticed that in those occasions, the congregation was always very, very engaged. And it was after those sermons when he would do that that he would oftentimes hear words of encouragement from the congregation, words of, of appreciation for his sermon that, that week, that day. And so he noticed that over time, as he developed as a pastor and a, and a preacher and sort of developed his skill, he began to preach less from a manuscript and more in a personal way, more of, a, of an extemporaneous kind of way, if you will. And to accompany this, one of the conclusions that this pastor came to was that the pulpit that they had there at that church was just a little bit too cumbersome. They had a very old pulpit, old style pulpit where it was big, it was wooden, and in his mind, especially given the change in his preaching style, it began to feel to him as though this pulpit was acting more as a barrier between he and the congregation than it was a, a helpful thing for the congregation. And so he took it upon himself, and this is where the story gets interesting, to remove that pulpit and replace it with something a little more modern, something a little bit smaller, something that he felt was more in tune with his preaching style and would be more helpful to the congregation. All of this is perfectly fine. I'm a, personally a fan of wooden pulpits. I like something that I can hold on to and isn't going to collapse on me or shrink down or anything like that. But if a person, if a pastor, if a preacher prefers something else, totally fine. All somewhat incidental to what happens here on a Sunday morning, right? But this pastor took it upon himself to implement this change, a change that seemed rather small, 
rather insignificant to him, but rocked the world of his church members. And he came in one Sunday, the Sunday after he had removed the big wooden pulpit and had a a smaller sort of uh, maybe music stand, lectern style uh, preaching apparatus there. And it was after that week, although he felt the the room and knew that something was up and he, he somewhat misjudged what would happen, but that following week was met with emails and meetings and conversations ranging from, I'm not sure that was the best idea, Pastor, to this is heresy. I can't believe you would do such a thing. We need to have a vote of confidence in you. He was met with all kinds of, of issues and, and problems. And the, 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 the issue, the, the controversy, got even more interesting when the following week, after this whole week of, of issues and thinking through, okay, I, I probably didn't do this the best. I probably should have maybe had a conversation with some people before I just made this change, even though it seems small to me. But then he comes back the next week to find that once again, the pulpit has been changed out. And his small lectern, his small music stand style pulpit has been removed and the old wooden pulpit is back. And the story goes in Tom Rader's book that according to eyewitnesses or earwitnesses rather, it was audible from the pastor and you could hear it in the room, who moved my pulpit? somehow kind of slipped out. The whole point of this, and, and the good news is, the church was able to make its way through this. Uh, it took them a couple years, but they recovered from the whole moving of the pulpit incident. But we see from that story, that's a true story. And if you've grown up in churches, you know, and you've heard of arguments, of issues that are petty, that are small, that frankly mean nothing, that cause all kinds of disagreement all kinds of division, all kinds of disunity among the church. Because we are quick, aren't we? To rise up against the small things that affect our scruples, the small things that that change the way we're used to things being, the way we worship, the way we do this or that. We're prone to that. But here's the sad thing, I think. That as much as we can all think of those kinds of examples, and while that is true of Much of Christianity today, and in many churches today, petty little issues become cause for great debate. But in many cases, we as Christians and many people in the church find it very difficult to take a stand on the things that really matter, to take a stand on issues that are central to the gospel. I can think of my own examples, my own occasions when I've had interactions with people around me. And very serious gospel issues might come up. And even though I'd be quick to argue with someone on the style of worship or on what artists we should or shouldn't sing on a Sunday morning or this or that, these other various little things, when it comes to major issues that I hear about churches doing or people doing things that I think are very serious, it often and suddenly becomes very difficult to take a stand on those things. The weight of those things oftentimes keeps us from taking a stand for the sake of the gospel. While we're quick to argue for a specific worship style, preaching style, the proper lighting in the church, the proper paint on the wall, whatever it might be, we oftentimes find it very difficult to take a stand on things that actually matter with regards to the gospel. In Acts chapter 15, what we see is we see the church addressing an issue that's so important, 
that the church deems it necessary to call together this ecumenical council of all the church leaders to come together to decide this issue, to meet in Jerusalem in order to discuss and debate this issue because in this issue, in Acts chapter 15, we realize that the very gospel is at stake. And so we're gonna look today at this council, this calling of this meeting of the Jerusalem council in order so that we might see what it is that they really took a stand for, what it is that matters to debate and to argue and to discuss for the sake of the gospel. We're gonna start with point number one, recognizing what the issue was that threatened the church. In verse one through five, we kind of see the stage set, even in in verse one. Now, if you recall from our, our previous chapter, things are going great. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their missionary journey. They're they're having this joy-filled time of celebrating with the church, what God is doing and how the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles and they are believing and they're being added together and the dividing wall of hostility is being broken down, as he says in Ephesians. And then chapter 15, verse one, it's like a smack in the face to all that just was said, to all that we just read. We oftentimes think about threats to the church, and we we usually will think of threats to the church in terms of external things, persecution, or, or hostility from the government, or this or that. But the reality of what we see in Acts chapter 15 is that the greatest threat to the church usually comes from within. The threat that that the church is dealing with now is not some external threat of the government oppressing them, but of people who have risen up from inside the church that threaten the unity of the church, but more than that, threaten the gospel itself. With chapter 15, verse one saying, but men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The way of salvation is at stake here in this issue that has arisen from within the church not from an external source, but an internal source, which makes it all the more dangerous. The issue that has risen up here is the very same one that was threatening the Galatian church as, as what, and, and is what prompted Paul to write so severely, so sternly, we recall, as he writes to the Galatian church for fear that they were abandoning the gospel. The issue at stake here is what has oftentimes been called the the Judaizer heresy or even the Galatian heresy. This false teaching that while salvation is, it necessarily means salvation in Christ. Christ is essential for salvation and, and faith in him is essential for salvation, but the law of Moses still stands and is still an essential means of entrance into the covenant of grace. Circumcision being the mark of that covenant, the old covenant, the covenant of Abraham. The issue at stake was there were these believers, these Gentile believers who if you know anything about Gentiles or know nothing about Gentiles, you know that the one thing they were not is they were not circumcised because they weren't Jewish. And the issue had come up by these these Jewish believers who had come down from Samaria. And by the way, the text uses believers. Some commentators think that maybe they were just they were believers and they're being very gracious to them or perhaps the word believers here is, is an indication that they were maybe false believers, false professors, false teachers and indeed I think probably many of them were 
But one of the things that we see is that they were coming down to these regions where these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And they were proclaiming to them what they believe, what they know, what they are accustomed to. They are saying, hey, everything that you've heard from Paul and Barnabas, all these things that you're doing, it's all great. But the one thing that you're still lacking that you have to do if you want to be saved is that you need to be circumcised. Everyone who's saved gets circumcised. You have to get circumcised in order to be saved. They were preaching a gospel of faith plus circumcision, or we could say faith plus the law. We might be able to understand, if we think about it, where they're coming from, right? These, these Jews, in order to show them a little bit of courtesy, in order to give them the benefit of the doubt, put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, what have they known for their whole lives? They've known Judaism. They've known circumcision. They've known the law of Moses. It's what they knew. It's not surprising to us, or at least it shouldn't be, that it's what they, they thought and expected of all who would come into the fold. It was a very difficult thing for them, as, as we've seen over the past couple months. Very difficult for them to accept the idea that salvation had now come to the Gentiles, these uncircumcised people. Indeed, circumcision itself is a symbol of being cleansed having our sins symbolically removed, cut off. That's why in the Old Testament, it was oftentimes used as an insult. If you recall the scene of of David and Goliath, where David stands before Goliath, he stands on on the battlefield, and there's just the greatest, one of the, the two greatest scenes of trash talk ever seen in the scriptures, as David is talking with Goliath. What does he call him? He says, you uncircumcised Philistine. That was the highest insult you could give someone for a Jews in the Old Testament. You are uncircumcised. You are filthy. You are cut off from the covenant. We also might think, and if I were a Jew, I might think, well, hey, if I had to be circumcised, if I had to obey the law of Moses, I think they should too. Why shouldn't we all have to obey the law of Moses? Why shouldn't we all have to be circumcised? Maybe feeling a little bit of injustice here. I mean, I'm reminded of when I worked at Toyota. And I worked at Toyota for just about a year, not very long, but long enough that I was there that they sort of changed their, their hiring and their pay structures to where when I started, it took like 15 years to max out your pay. You had to be there for 15 years to max out your pay just as a, a base level employee. But while I was there, they changed it down to something like seven years, that in seven years, you could max out your pay. And you would think everyone would say, oh, this is great. Awesome. Good news. People are getting paid more. That's great. But what happened to those guys who had been there 13, 14, 15 years? You think they were happy about that? No, they were not. They were quite unhappy about it, especially those guys who had already maxed out after 15 years. They said, that's not fair. I had to work 15 years to get my full pay. Now you're giving it to these guys who've only been here seven years. And it's a funny thing to think about because were those men, were those men and women who had been there 15 years, were they having anything taken away from them? Was any of their pay being removed? No. In fact, for the ones who had been there 13 or 14 years, they received a pay increase. But just the fact that these newer people who had come in and only been there seven years were already getting the pay that they were getting not that theirs have been taken away, but they were getting what they had to wait 
eight, 15 years for, to them that felt like injustice. But was it injustice? It wasn't. It wasn't. In the same way, the, the parable of the man who's hiring laborers for the day, and he hires some at the beginning of the day, and he pays them a day's wage. He hires some in the middle of the day, and he pays them a day's wage. He hires some at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, they all receive the same pay. And the laborers who'd been there all day working said, what's this all about? We've been here all day, and we receive the same pay? And the employer says, is that unjust? Is it unjust for me to give you the same pay that I gave them? I gave you a full day's wage, didn't I? Yes. I think in a similar way, that's the issue that the Jews had here. We had to be circumcised. We had to hold to the law of Moses, be bound to it. Why shouldn't they? Circumcision was used in the Old Covenant to define the borders of the covenant community to determine who was in and who was out of the covenant community. But that was the old covenant, wasn't it? That was a covenant of works. And no one was ever saved through the covenant of works. Only through the covenant of grace are people saved. The covenant by which believers now are sealed with Christ, saved from God's wrath, is the covenant of grace. And entrance into that covenant is by what? Is it by circumcision? No. Entrance into the covenant of grace is by faith. And by the way, the covenant of grace extends all the way back, even back to Adam. All of the Old Testament saints who were saved were saved under the covenant of grace, and they were saved by their faith. They were still bound to the covenant of Abraham. They were still still called to obey the covenant of works. But it was not the means by which they were saved. They were saved through the covenant of grace. And so today, in Acts chapter 15, we see this issue at play. The sort of debate, the sort of tension between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works and the role that they play. And that's what we will begin to see being established here as we hear the testimonies that are given Point number two, we see here, we begin to see the developing debate and the testimony of Peter in verses six through 11. Peter, this pillar of the church, stands up to speak. We read in six through 11 that the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. When we think about, excuse me, though circumcision was the immediate issue at, at stake here. It was sort of the, the immediate issue, the, the, the topic du jour in this discussion. There was a deeper issue that was being dealt with. There was a deeper problem, more than just circumcision. They were discussing whether or not obedience to the law was a fundamental basis for a person's salvation. They were answering the question, what must a person do to be saved? Is it necessary that a person uphold the law in order to be saved? 
That's the gravity of the question that they are dealing with here. Nothing less than salvation itself is on the table. And how does Peter, as he starts recounting his experience, what's the first thing that he points to? He starts recounting his experience with Cornelius. He presents what I consider to be one of the most helpful illustrations, one of the most important pieces of evidence as he's bearing witness to the council. And the evidence that he puts forward is the coming of the Holy Spirit. That as the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, and Peter knows because guess what? He was there preaching the gospel to Cornelius and to his house, this group of Gentiles, uncircumcised. And what did Peter witness happen? He witnessed the very same thing he saw at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, he saw signs and wonders being performed as the Holy Spirit and dwelt the believers there in Cornelius' house. That before and apart from circumcision, the Holy Spirit came and confirmed the work that was done. And then he goes on to describe the law. Peter does in verse 10. He says, now therefore, in other words, after seeing this, And what God has done and confirmed by the Holy Spirit, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is what Peter says about the law, that it is a yoke that we could not bear, that you could not bear, that our our forefathers could not bear. Why would we give them this gospel of grace and then burden them with the law, the very same law that we couldn't keep? It's a good question that Peter asks. It's very similar to the way Paul describes the law in Galatians chapter 5, where in verses 1 through 4 of Galatians 5, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What yoke of slavery is that? The law, circumcision. Verse two, Paul goes on. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That is to accept this heresy that the Judaizers are preaching, to accept the argument that circumcision is necessary for salvation is to reject the grace of God for the sake of the law. It is to cling to Moses rather than to Christ. And it is to fall from grace. For indeed, there is no salvation to be found by obedience to the law. He says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Who can keep the whole law? Nobody. Not even Peter. Not even their fathers. The greatest person in their history was unable to keep the law. By works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight. This was the threat that they were dealing with here in the Jerusalem council. The intrusion of the law as necessary for salvation. 
as necessary to be justified before God, the claim was being made that you had to be obedient to the law, and that is not the gospel. That is heresy. That is false teaching. And by the way, it's a a false teaching that is alive and well today. Even among evangelical churches, we see this very same thing threatening the church, this mixture of the law and the gospel, obedience or, or works along with faith, faith as necessary for salvation. Granted, it doesn't look the same as it did then. Not many people are arguing today that circumcision is necessary to be saved. But the heresy is alive and well, just wearing different makeup. Today, it's not uncommon to find people who say that things like baptism are necessary for salvation. Church attendance is necessary for salvation. Quiet times, you name it. They might not be overt, but they are there. This idea that while we are saved by faith, we are saved by faith and our obedience and our good works and the law. It's the same heresy, just dressed up a little bit different, hoping we won't recognize it. It's kind of like, it reminds me of uh, the great pumpkin, the Charlie Brown movie, where all the Peanuts characters are, they have on their, their ghost costumes, and poor Pigpen, if you know Pigpen, he's the kid that's always uh, filthy dirty, just like a cloud of dust around him all the time, right? And Pigpen puts on his Halloween costume, he puts on his ghost outfit, and he says, this is great, they'll never be able to recognize me under here, and he walks up to his group of friends in their Halloween costumes, they look at him and say, Hey, Pigpen, glad you could make it. And he says, how'd you recognize me? Well, the answer was obvious. Even with the sheet over his head, even though you couldn't see his face, you could see the cloud of of dust looming all around this poor kid who just never bathed and was dirty all the time. That's kind of the way it is with, with many heresies, including this one. The same heresy is around, just dressed up a little bit different. But it still comes back to the same root issue. It's still the same affront to the gospel. It is a denial of justification, of salvation by grace alone. And it's one that we must stand against, even today, the same way the church did then. Tony Morita, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Gospel math works like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The work of Jesus is totally sufficient. That is, faith plus anything, Christ plus anything at all is a false gospel. Faith plus obedience to the law is a false gospel. Faith plus a special secondary baptism is a false gospel. Faith plus anything as necessary for salvation is an abandonment of the gospel. That is the point that Peter wants to get across to the council, to the church as he speaks. And after Peter gives his testimony and after we've heard from, from Paul and Barnabas of what they had seen and what they had done, what the Holy Spirit had been doing through them, we get to point number three, the conclusion and the testimony of James. The final word in the Jerusalem council comes from James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader at the church in Jerusalem. And I so appreciate what he does When it's his time to speak, what does he do? What does James appeal to? He affirms the experiences of 
of both Paul and Barnabas and that of Peter, acknowledging that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't rest his argument there ultimately. His conclusion is not based, is not rested ultimately on their experiences. He rests his conclusion ultimately on the word of God. As he quotes in verses 16 and 17 from the prophet Amos. He says, and with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Let's pause there for just one second. The Jewish believers would have loved that part, right? Even the Jews in general, when, when thinking of the Messiah, they love that part, right? Our great king, King David, the greatest king that Israel has ever known. His kingdom is going to be restored, right? That's what they look for. That's what they long for. But then he goes on and continues quoting Amos in verse 17. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and... All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He says, look, the experiences are important and we look to those, but we look to those as confirmation of what the Bible has already told us. The experiences are not the end all be all of themselves. The word of God is. This is a good model for us as it's easy for us to become convinced of things by experience, whether it be our experience or the experience of others. We are taken in by experiences, aren't we? Many people in many false religions have had experiences, haven't they? Experiences that have led them to all sorts of wild and crazy and even godless conclusions. Our faith our justification, the truth of the gospel does not ultimately rest on our experience or the experience of others, but it rests ultimately on the word of God. And so James appeals to God's word as he lays down the final word, as he concludes this Jerusalem council, this meeting to discuss and to, to decide what they will do about this heresy as the Holy Spirit is leading them. And then notice, as James concludes his speech, he goes on in verses 19 to 21 to give commands for the Gentile believers to follow. And now we might think, wait a second, wait a second. Why is he giving these commands? Look what he says in verse 19 through 20. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Great, James. Don't trouble them. Leave it there. That's it. That's enough. Don't trouble them. The gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, end of the discussion. But then he confuses us, doesn't he? When he goes on to say in verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And we ask the question, okay, what are you doing here, James? The, the council has come to a conclusion. They have come to a decision, but now you're laying a burden of commands on these believers, on these Gentiles. Why? Let me start by saying, James, in case you need to hear this, I'm telling you, 
is in no way contradicting the gospel. He's in no way contradicting what has already come before. He is in no way taking the, the free gospel of grace and now distorting it by adding the law to it. By no means. As one pastor said, and I think a helpful way for us to recognize this, is that James and the council were telling the Gentile believers, you don't have to convert to Judaism to be saved, but you cannot remain a pagan. Because what are the things that he has just written to them concerning? All of these things that he has just given them and just outlined and said, we need to tell them not to do these things. What do all of these have to do with in the context in which they were written? All of these things were intrinsically tied to and a part of idolatry and pagan worship. All of these things were. What he's telling them, he's saying, don't in any way participate with these things. What he is not telling them is if you are to be saved, you don't have to be circumcised, but you do have to do these things in order to be justified before God. Absolutely not. In fact, one of the clues to, to tell us is that, that that's not what he's saying comes from the fact that in the next chapter, as we'll read, the letter is written not to potential believers, not to Gentiles who want to come to Christ. It is written from the brothers in Jerusalem to the Gentile brothers, addressing them as brothers, those who have been saved by the grace of God. But now, James, in his teaching, in his wisdom and the counsel together, says, but the one thing we do need to do is we need to help these Gentiles be the best Christians that they can be and the best Christians to the brothers and sisters in Christ around them. For indeed, as he says, the law of Moses was still preached regularly on the Sabbath in the synagogues. And many of their Jewish brothers had great issue with these things, with the, the, the food offered to idols, with that which had been strangled, with the blood and all of these various issues. If you recall, if you, if you know your New Testament, you'll know that there's other places in which Paul writes and says that it's okay to eat food offered to idols. He says, don't let your conscience be bothered. But what does he also say? For the sake of the weaker brother, it is better to even give up your own rights. As the Jerusalem council is writing here and concluding, they set the gospel straight, that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the way people are saved, not by obedience to the law. But he goes on to say, for the sake of unity, brothers, sisters, follow these things. Love your brothers and sisters well. Give up on paganism and do everything you can not even to associate with paganism so as not to be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is an appropriate use of God's law. That's the point of these prohibitions. It's to, to prohibit them from doing anything that would cause a stumbling block or cause issues in the unity of the church. Not to mention the fact that some of the things were outright excluded from Christian life like uh, fornication and sexual immorality. At this point, the Jerusalem Council is demonstrating a right understanding of the purpose of the law as obedience and for obedience in the life of believers. One of the most important things that we need to recognize from this sermon is that there is a necessary distinction between the law and the gospel. That the law and the gospel are 
two distinct things and must be understood as such. If you recall, my sermon title is the law-free gospel. It's a phrase that I actually don't think I'd ever really heard before until I read it in a commentary by F.F. Bruce that Paul was called to preach a law-free gospel. And it struck me for a moment. It struck me as, is that good? Is that bad? Is that right? It seems as though to say that the gospel is a law-free gospel is to reject the law, is to disdain the law, is to despise the law. But I would argue that it's not. And in fact, to understand the gospel rightly is to understand that the gospel, salvation, is a law-free gospel. That is to say, we are not saved in any way by our obedience to the law, but purely by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the point. The claim I'm making is, is not that the law is irrelevant. It's not that it's unimportant. It's not that it has no role to play even in the life of believers, as the council acknowledges. But it is to make clear the distinction between the law and the gospel, that one is not the other. That salvation comes only by one of these two means. The truth that one of these has the power to save and the other the power to condemn. It is only the gospel that has the power to save believers. It is only in Christ that we are saved by trusting in him and his finished work on the cross for our sin that we can be saved. The purpose of the law, as it was given, is to expose our sin, is to show us our sin, to help us to see just how wicked we are, how incapable we are of living up to God's righteous standard, so that we will be forced to look for another way. God has presented that other way in the gospel, Jesus Christ, and faith in him alone. And it is by that that we are saved. This is the essential question for us to answer and one that we, just like the Jerusalem council, need to stand for and need to be ready to debate and to defend more so than any other controversy that should come up in the church. That which affects the gospel is essential and is worth fighting for, is worth defending, is worth taking a stand for, it's worth taking weird looks for. It's worth being called a bigot for. It's worth being called extreme for because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, not by works of the law, but purely by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.